of Unbeatable, I get a chance to meet, for the first time ever, Mike Norris. This guy has been in the center of movements. He's been in the middle of storms. He's got a story about a firestorm, about a financial storm, about some of the challenges of family. Basically, there is something from Mike's story that we can all learn about on this episode of Unbeatable. And by the way, before we get into this episode, I just wanna remind you, I'm going with some friends and I want you to come no matter where you live on this unbeatable Holy Land adventure. It's gonna be on March 17th through the 27th and here's some more information about it. Before we get into the interview for this episode, I want to invite you to go with me on the trip of a lifetime, and that is not an exaggeration. I've spent more than the last year building a tour of the Holy Land that never existed before. This is what we're calling the unbeatable adventure, where we're going to repel, we're going to climb cliffs, we're going to ride mountain bikes through the countryside, we're going to swim in the Dead Sea, we're going to climb trails, we're going to spend nights under the stars and spend days in luxury hotel rooms, we'll be in fishing boats on the Sea of Galilee. This is basically everything that you could want to do with action and adventure adventure in Israel, plus all of the world's great historical sites there. And the dates for this trip are March 17th through the 27th. I want to invite you to come along. We built this trip so no matter where you live in the world, all you need to do is buy plane tickets and show up in Israel on day one. And from there, we pay for and we take care of everything. Hey, if this epic tour sounds like something you're interested in, why don't you go over to Signature Tours and search for the unbeatable Holy Land Adventure with Jeff Struber. Starts March 17th and it runs until the 27th. I would love to see you there with me. Now let's get into this interview with my guest, Mike Norris, on this episode of Unbeatable. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Hey, Mike, thanks for joining me on this episode of Unbeatable. Hey, Jeff, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, our team has been doing a little cyber stalking of you, um, and I've learned a little bit about you just from the internet. And you know the internet, who knows if what they've said is true. So I'm looking forward to getting to know you and finding out if what the internet says about you is true. Okay, we'll see what happens here. Yeah. Um, listen, I was on an airplane a couple of months back and um, I had been wanting to watch the movie Jesus Movement. Uh, so I'm on an airplane, I'm flying on a long flight and sure, I'm, I'm 15 minutes into this movie and I'm absolutely hooked. And then it takes me all the way to the last scene of the movie before I realize I, I thought this whole movie was about Kelsey Grammer's character and about the whole Calvary Chapel movement. 
But actually, it appears that this movie was all about Greg Laurie and about his start in ministry. I don't want to ruin it for anybody who's watching this episode or listening to this episode of Unbeatable who hasn't seen Jesus Movement. Great movie. Go watch it. Even if you don't know the history of what went on there, I still think it's it's absolutely an awesome movie. Have you seen the movie, Mike? I have seen the movie, and we've uh, shown it actually to uh, several sets of friends now, too. So nice. That, so, that actually uh, is is our story. I yeah. Mean, uh, so I, that's where I was going with this next. Do, would you give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down or what? I would definitely give it a thumbs up. So All right. It, it, so... It, it, Spoiler alert for the entire audience, you were kind of connected with Harvest Church and with Greg Laurie for a long time. Man, I, I, I've been dying to find out this part of your past. So let's just talk about your time with Greg Laurie and Harvest Church that, uh, you know, the movie Jesus Movement describes. Can you, can you go back uh, in time a little bit and let's talk about that? Sure. Um, I had been a lifelong Catholic kind of retired after 20 years, but uh, I had been away from church for about four years. And uh, my brother kept trying to get me to go to church and he kept telling me about this church that he was going to. And, and uh, you know, I couldn't believe there was a church that, that was that exciting and that, that, that great. <laughs> yeah. But um, let me jump in your brother, the, the language that your brother's using, you're saying, no way that can't be church, right? Uh, church is not supposed to be exciting. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly my point. Plus, who listens to their little brother, really? You know? Right, so, exactly. Especially you know? <laughs> he's your little brother. Yeah. What does he know? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but I, I actually did uh, did end up going to church with him and uh, his wife. And a little bit because I was interested in his sister-in-law. So, uh, well, there you go. You know, but uh, actually, yes. Uh, that night um, was the second time that my wife had walked down the aisle with me. She we were paired up during the wedding, and then so after uh, listening to Steve Camp and listening to Greg, which I don't remember a word that he said, I just knew that I needed Jesus, and so we walked down the aisle with me that night too, and so uh, that was way back in 1979. And uh, Harvest was probably, well, actually, we were Calvary Chapel Riverside back then. And um, we were probably about 600 strong. We were, we were in the, the very church that Chuck handed the keys to Greg to. And uh, it was interesting because we had just graded off the pad for the big church when we started going there. And so we actually got to watch Harvest grow from about 600 people to about 16,000 by the time we left. Holy smokes. Oh, wait a second. You got to do these numbers again for people that are driving and didn't catch that part of it. When you showed up, 1970s, late 1970s, Harvest Christian Fellowship was about 600 people. And when you left there, how many years later? With that there, um, I believe 16 years later, maybe 17, and we uh, had an attendance at that point of about 16,000 people. Yeah, wow. 
Um, for anybody who's listening right now who didn't see the movie Jesus Movement, and I suspect that's most of the people that are not listening from the United States and even a lot of the U.S. audience, um, you got a chance to basically get a front row seat to most of what the movie Jesus Movement shows. What uh, kind of describe how your role uh, adjusted, how your role changed as the church grew during those first years, uh, first few years? Well, it was interesting because the first few years, of course, you know, you're just learning and learning and learning. And, you know, the, the way Harvest and the rest of Calvary chapels teach and do service is we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line by line, you know, with expository teaching. And so it, there were times it seemed like we were drinking, you know, get, getting a drink through a uh, fire, fire hose, hose so right? And, yeah, I know what that and, feels like. Yeah, you know, so between, you know, Sundays and, and Wednesdays, it was a lot of learning. But um, at the same time, it, it was participating. You know, they, they never advocating, you know, being what they called a pew potato. They, they wanted input and, and output. So... You know, it became doing a lot of lay ministry around the church and, um, you know, from ushering and doing the parking lot ministry and uh, becoming a new convert counselor and then becoming a lay counselor and an elder there. It was just, you know, continually, like I said, continuous learning, continually accepting your new responsibilities. Yeah. When I first saw the title to the movie and kind of the picture behind it, um, I recognized the phrase Jesus movement because of what I studied. Now, for the listeners out there, I'm an, I'm an older guy. I'm a pretty old guy, but this is a little bit before my time. There was a phenomenon in the United States, and it actually started spreading around the world in the later half of the 1970s called the Jesus movement. And that Jesus movement, which is what the film is named, was hippies, literally, um, the, you know, tie-dyed and bell-bottom jeans and long hair that were just radically being changed. And they would kind of continue to look like hippies, but they were now hippies for Jesus. And it sounds like you were actually right in the middle of the whole Jesus movement. And I'm not talking just Greg Laurie and Harvest Christian Fellowship Church, but I'm talking about that whole phenomenon of people coming to their lives being radically changed in the late 1970s. When was it that your brother invited you to church? When was it that, that your life really turned around? He probably started asking me to go about 1978. And then in March of 79, um, I can't ever remember the, the specific date, but my wife has it. But uh, March of 79 is actually when I accepted the Lord. And, and, All right. And so, I didn't miss this phrase. You said it earlier, but I want to go back to it now. You said that your wife walked down the aisle with you. Is is that what happened on that day that Jesus radically changed you? Yeah, we had the, the four of us, my brother, his wife, my future wife that I didn't know that yet, but, and I went to the evening service and 
you know, it's typically we, we had worship. Uh, we had a musician there who, which, which was Steve Camp that night. And then, and then Greg went ahead and, and gave his evangelistic Sunday night sermon. So, and he always did an altar call Sunday night. So I just, you know, the Lord, when the Lord wanted me, it was really interesting because it wasn't only my brother that was witnessing to me, but it was people that we were driving to the hospital in the back of the ambulance. They would just start talking to me about Jesus. Or I had a, I had a guy in school that was like, um, he was a deputy sheriff. And so of course the paramedic and the deputy sheriff always hooked up. And and so he was talking to me about Jesus and and it's just, the Lord just kept sending me people for a period of about two years. And, you know, I was like, well, I'm a Catholic and I kept blowing it off towards that direction. But then, you know, he just kept creating circumstances in my life to where I knew Catholicism wasn't the answer or any religion was, wasn't the answer. It was the relationship. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed this out. We're not going to knock people for their denomination. We're not going to knock religious systems in this episode. But I will say that lots of people, they inherited mom and dad's faith, and they basically bought into a religious system and not necessarily a relationship with God. And what you found that Sunday night at Harvest was no longer religion, a genuine relationship with the God who created you. Um. I already know a little bit about this answer, but I want you to go ahead and answer it to the audience. Why are you out in California in the first place? What are you doing out there when you finally get connected to this church? Well, we grew up in an Air Force family. So I joke around that I put my 20 years in the Air Force too, but as a dependent. (laughs) All right. As such, you know, we traveled all over the United States. I think we did five bases while I was still in the family in the United States. And we we had gone to, to Spain and, and had done a tour in Spain. And then we came back oh, nice. to California. And at first we came back to Central California and then to March Air Force Base down in Southern California. And so when um, my parents got divorced about the time I was 14 or 15, somewhere in there. And because I was in high school, I stayed with my mom because it was the first time I'd been in a school for more than two years in a row. And I didn't want to give that up at that point. Yeah. Well, listen, on this podcast, we always thank veterans for their service, but we take it a step further. And we always thank military families because of the great sacrifices that you made so that your parents could serve in the Air Force. So thank you, Mike, for the sacrifices you made. And now the guests or now the audience that's listening gets a chance to hear about those sacrifices moving every couple of years and the challenges. But you went through more than just typical military brat or, you know, Air Force brat, military child problems when your parents, problems at home when you were growing up. Uh, mom and dad or dad had some issues more than just, you know, what the Air Force was bringing into the family. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like growing up at home? Yeah, actually, it it wasn't just my dad. There was a lot of uh, verbal and physical mutual combat between mom and dad. There was there was more than enough alcohol flowing half the time. And, you know, the, the smoking, the cursing, the just, you know, general 
disarray of the house and uh you know it was kind of interesting because i thought maybe it was just my perception but after we all grew up and my brothers and i have talked about this a dozen times at least it you know they perceived the same thing but um you know it it, it actually kind of settled down a little bit after they split but being the oldest i i kind of had to take on some of the the rage you know from my mom that my dad was receiving so uh, made me very insecure made me very withdrawn um i like you spent my time running you know i, I eventually you know in high school i was a sub five minute miler and, and nice impressive you know, I, I, yeah because i would just get out and run you know and then so i it's really good about running away from problems yeah. about yeah. you can them. actually physically run into your exhausted your problems are still at home but now i'm so exhausted that i'm not stressed out about them anymore right exactly so um but, uh, yeah so, so you just mentioned something and i want to make sure that nobody missed this you're the oldest child mom and dad if i heard you correctly are pretty violent with each other both with their words but also physically and because you're the oldest child and in every family that i know where there's issues the oldest child always has the brunt of them like all of the children experience them but usually the oldest child has it the worst so you said dad was angry dad was combative with mom and as a result mom did i hear you correctly turned around and took that out on you um not while they were together but subsequent to that you know everything in life that went wrong was my fault or yeah you know i just i just became she she had just as angry of a personality as he did and it was yeah. it, it was it was probably not a good match from the beginning but um yeah neither, neither one of them would ever give in or give up and you know so certainly everybody that's listening knows a friend or two that has a marriage like you're describing like the hu the husband is volatile the wife is volatile and then when they start to go at it now it's like uh you know two uh, sticks of dynamite exploding it's bad enough when there's one stick of dynamite going off in the relationship when there's two it's twice as bad right um and most kids that grow up in an environment like that cannot wait to get away from home, cannot wait to find a job, move out, and basically leave that drama behind them. Um, what was it that you that got you out of the home, and you know, what is it that you started doing uh, to to for a career after leaving school? I um. I did some odd jobs, um, including working in a hospital emergency room, and and uh, I got to see in the paramedics bringing people in, and I thought, well, you know, I'd like to become a paramedic, so I went to emergency medical technician school, and then went to paramedic school, and started working there. But um, the 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 call to nursing was still kind of there, so I went to nursing school, and eventually became an RN and worked in the ER and the ICUs and surgery for a little bit, but I hated being inside. I wanted to go back out in the field. So I went to the fire department after that. In 1984, I finally got a full-time fire job as a firefighter paramedic. And that started off on a 
34 year career after that. So. Uh, that's what we're going to talk about next. But now you've just explained a comment a few minutes ago. You said, Hey, even when I was in the back of an ambulance heading to the hospital and immediately I thought, and most people probably did, were you on your deathbed when you were heading to the hospital? But you were yeah. actually working in the back of the ambulance, taking somebody to the hospital when friends started talking to you about what they believe and asking you questions because you were a paramedic on an ambulance. Right. You know, it's pretty funny, too, because a lot of people go, oh, you're working on an ambulance. It must give you a, a lot of time to witness to somebody. And it, yet, you know, you try to explain to them that sometimes I'm really in the middle of saving their lives. Yeah. And you know, they're no go that way, right? Yeah, they're in no condition to understand what you're telling them. And you're no, you know, I mean, you're always praying in the back of your yeah. mind, but, you know, saying, well, I'm saving their lives so maybe somebody else can witness to them. Right. So. On an ambulance in Southern California, you had to have seen some intense stuff. I mean, listen, ambulances get a chance to, to, to be right in the thick of, you know, life and death. Literally, that's why you're on an ambulance. Um, anywhere in America, rural town or small towns, uh, you know, in rural uh, parts of America, just like the big cities. But man, this is the late 1970s, early 1980s in Southern California, um, where there are riots, literally people burn buildings to the ground because of, you know, what was going on in that part of uh, California. So I don't know if you remember any of those in, uh, exceptionally, uh, you know, gruesome or not gruesome, we're not trying to gross people out, but exceptionally challenging, you know, situations that you had to deal with when you're on the back of the ambulance. Yeah. Um, in, in parts of California, like the rest of the nation, you know, the, there's paramedics on the ambulances too. So they're not just in the fire department, but um, we did see the worst of life. You know, we, uh, there's things burned in my brain that, you know, I can't really even describe because, you know, it, it, it would just be too gross to, to be on the show. Yeah, please but, don't um, gross people out right now because there's some mom driving right now listening to this podcast and I don't want her to start throwing up while she's driving down the road. Exactly. You know, and, and I, I don't want to spread that trauma because some people just listening to it yeah. infer that trauma. So, you know, yeah. I always tell people I'm not normal, you know, and many of us aren't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. You know what? I'm not normal either. So now we got, you know, now it's okay that you're not normal, nor am I. Um, I, I can understand why you're not. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I ask you about the ambulance on purpose because I want people to recognize there's a lot of people behind the scenes that when you and I pick up our cell phone and we're in the middle of life's worst moments and you just use that language, like you got a chance to see the darkest or the ugliest or the worst parts of life. When you and I pick up the cell phone and dial those three numbers, 911, there are people that rush into our mess and come in the middle of this gruesome scene or this terrible situation. And man, I want to thank you for being a military family, but I also want to thank you for being a first responder because I've been around the world to enough places to know there are lots of places in the world where if you're hurt or you're in trouble, you does, there's no one you can call for help. And I don't, it doesn't, it's not lost on me the fact that we live in a country where if you dial the numbers 911, there's a huge resource and a lot of people 
that are going to go screaming with the lights flashing and the, the, you know, at full speed into your mess to try to get to you and help you. And man, what a, what an incredible country we live in that there's guys like guys and gals like you, Mike, in uh, first responders and, you know, law enforcement that are there to help when we're in, in a need. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate it. And I appreciate your service too. For me. Uh, well, thanks. So you, you go from the ambulance to the police force. Uh, let's just get to the firestorm. Um, there's a part of your story that I want people to really hear and I want them to hear, you know, the full story. So can you talk about what you experienced um, back in 1994? Right. I, I was uh, working for the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, which is a state fire department there. And Working in Riverside County, which is down in the southern section of California, it also served as the county fire department there. So it was a, it's a rather large fire department with about 96 stations and a couple of thousand people in it. And wow. I 96 was, fire stations in yes. that county. Wow. Yeah. And that was, that's just the county fire department. It doesn't count all the other cities. But um, I was stationed up on what we called the Mountain Plateau. Um, We've got huge mountains in, in Southern California. Um, the mountain that we lived on actually was almost 11,000 feet in altitude. And, and uh, where I worked was sitting about 4,400 feet. It was nice apple orchards, but just like everywhere else in California, just a ton of brush. It was a very rural area and uh, houses interspersed with all that. And then um, on June 26th of 1994, I was a fire captain working on a brush engine and uh, not too far from the San Diego County line. Yeah, and they, we had a vehicle fire that got started. And as many vehicle fires happen or mm -hmm. house fires happen up there, they end up into the brush. Yeah. Now I want to pause for just a second, Mike. Okay. There are listeners right now that are listening from Sweden and there are people tuned in in Australia right. and in the Philippines. And none of them are really familiar with the terrain in Southern California. Mm -hmm. You are, I am. But almost everybody in the world has seen these news reports about thousands of acres on fire and it's sweeping across California, you know, at, at a at full speed and many houses that are on fire. And what I want people to hear from you right now is why do you keep seeing the, why does people all over the world see news reports about these wildfires in California? And you and I know there's, there's some perfect conditions when these conditions line up and a fire gets started, man, it is going to be very, very bad for, uh, for a lot of people um, because of just the way that California, that part of California is. So um, you've just started describing that. Can you go into a little bit more detail for those listeners around the world that don't understand California, but they've seen the pictures on their news channels about wildfires in Southern California? Sure. The, the typical fuels in California, um, there, there's a lot of brush out there. We, we do have a lot of trees running too, um, but they tend to be chronically dehydrated. Yeah, it's dry out there, like almost desert dry. Right. And, and we lived in a, you know, we lived and worked in um, a semi-arid place that, um, you know, that by, by usually by July or August, the, the fuels were just 
they, they would have no live fuel moisture to them. There was nothing coming up through the roots. And so you combine that with triple digit heat and single digit humidity and double digit wind and you just got a recipe for fires yeah i I want to i wanted you to do that math formula one more time because just imagine that where you live everything is dry to the bone i mean you just described it dry all the way to the roots triple digit heat single digit humidity which means there's no moisture in the air if the fire starts and double digit wind you put those three math, uh, those three uh, components together in a math formula, and what you're going to get if a vehicle catches on fire on the side of the road is a wildfire that is going to spread at an uncontrollable rate, which is what happened in June of 94, right? You're um, a fire captain when a vehicle catches on fire near the side of the road and boom, it's off and, uh, right. and, and the fire's off, you know, off to the races. So, so the second day, this, this fire, the fire just ripped the whole first day. And the second day, we started losing homes. And so we spent the majority of the day trying to save homes. And it just was, was getting to be rather futile. It was getting to be rather frustrating. We were, I think we lost close to 60 or 70 homes, if I remember correctly. A lot of outbuildings. And uh, so... While I was busy doing structure protection, uh, the bosses were formulating a plan to burn out a lot of the fuel um, so that the fire would stop. And yeah, just take away the source of the fire by burning it out before the, 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 the major flames get there. Is that what you're exactly. describing? Exactly. So yeah. the, the, the plan was for all night long for the bulldozers to come in and cut Two lines, both of them were reinforcing old truck trails or old Jeep trails, but to, to widen those out, um, one on the south flank of the fire, one on the west flank of the fire, and then we would burn simultaneously each flank and meet together in the corner. And um, it was a huge amount of area. It was probably four and a half or five square miles that we were wow. just going to burn yeah. out. And wow. It, it was all vegetation. There were no houses in there. So we knew that, you know, we wouldn't be putting any more assets at risk other other than the wildland. And so um, the next morning we were we were going to get started. We started running into logistical problems. Some of the equipment didn't show up. Some of the staffing didn't show up. Uh, we were getting behind time. And so... Um, I was assigned to the west flank and we were going to we're actually going to start firing from the north corner of the fire down to the south corner of the fire. We we're going to go north to south. The other guys were going to go east to west and we were supposed to be in that corner, like I said. Um, but because we got behind time on my flank, we got started late and got started way short on resources, too. But. They determined, hey, we're going to do it. The the south, the guys on the south flank were already burning, and we couldn't lose it because we we weren't going to finish up that west flank. And we had another we had another community on the uh, west of us that we needed to protect as well. So, but we were we were doing fine. Um, you know, I had two firefighters on the engine, and uh, myself and another captain um, working working the flank and uh 
I need to explain something about the, the brush engines in California back then. Uh, basically, they were smaller engines. Um, the firefighters actually sat in the back, the very back of the engine, and you accessed it from the back. There were two seats in the back, and they faced each other. So the firefighters would, would ride sideways and face each other. And they had, uh, we had built-in fire shelters so that they could pull them over in case something went bad. And the reason I'm saying that is they come into play real quick here. But, and, and so we're just cruising down, you know, I'm thinking, man, this is a great day. The wind's at our back a little bit. And, and I, I was lighting along the, the dirt road and it was taken up and my friend was following up with a flare gun, my, my captain buddy. And our fire was taken up great. And, and the main body of fire is like two miles away from us. And so we thought, you know, this is doing good. We're nice and safe. And so we're cruising down, down the road there. And all of a sudden, I just felt like something ain't quite right. You know, in California, we call it AQR. but you know, just... <laughs> AQR, I love yeah. it. Ain't so... quite right. All of us know what that feels like. Yeah, so all the you know, I'm I'm sure it was the Holy Spirit telling me something, uh -huh. you know, but but um I stopped firing for a second. I looked up the road a little bit and and the other captain's looking at me same time. And and so I got on my handy talkie and I said, you know, something's AQR here. I don't I, I'm I'm not quite sure what it is. And he comes back and he says, I don't like it. And we had the engine in between the two of us. We were about fifty yards apart, and so um, we just went running back towards the engine and the, the two firefighters were on the back of the engine and we told them, you know what, something's going wrong here. And we started having spot fires all over the place, half a mile out in front of the main body of fire. You know, they were starting out at two to three to four acres and this place is just starting to auto ignite all over the place. And we no sooner told the two firefighters on the back, no matter what happens, you stay on this engine. Then the wind hit us face on and um, it hit hard and fast. Um, one of the firefighters, um, a gal named Terry, had, she went to deploy the fire shelter off the engine and it picked her up like a drag chute off of an F4 or B-52 or something that almost pulled her out of the engine. The other firefighter wrapped around her and they wrapped themselves up like a burrito in this thing and fell down between the two seats. And now stuff's hitting the engine hard. And, you know, not, not that there's a comparison here, but the sound sounded just like the movie in Black Hawk Down when you guys had stuff yeah. hitting you, yeah. you know, on the Humvees. It sounded just like that. And, and so um, th this wind is just picking everything up. And it's getting so, hard to see. It's getting hard to breathe. Where are you at this point? Where are you and the other captain right now? The two firefighters are still on the engine. Where are you right. and the other captain? I lost track of Kev. I, I, I the other completely, captain. Um, I was standing behind the engine, and I thought, I got to get these two firefighters. You know, they're young kids. You know, they're 18, yeah, 19 sure. years old. I, I thought, I got to get them into the cab because the cab uh -huh. was protected. And I thought, and so I'm pulling on their feet while they're down between the seats. And one of them kicked me in the finger. 
and it jammed my finger. And you know how life stops when you yes, jam a finger. And that just made you mad, right? Like I've got a fire around me that's about to consume us and we're all going to die. But I'm mad because you just jammed my finger. Yeah. So, you know, I wasn't really mad, but I was just thinking, man, I, you know, I know exactly what that feels like. I'm in the middle of a firefight. Everything in the world is, is exploding around me. And I just jammed my finger. And all I can think about is my finger right now. Exactly. Yeah. So then my helmet blows off, blew my helmet into oblivion. I, I never did find that helmet again. But then the I get fire, hit in the head. With, if, I want to make sure I heard this correctly. The yeah. fire ripped your helmet off of your head. The winds did. The winds did. Wow. The winds in front of the fire. And so um, I still, I, I was really getting pelted with rocks. It felt like I was getting hit with baseballs and golf balls and everything else. And and then one of them hit me in the head. And now I'm on all fours behind the engine. And I don't know which bodily function I'm going to lose control of first, but it was a real fight just not to go unconscious yeah yeah i, I could see my field of vision narrowing in and yeah, stuff everything and, starts to get dark around you right right and yeah. i just said you know what i am not dying on this stupid dirt road on the county line out here you know i just had to kind of get really determined about it and again i i sense some strength that wasn't coming from me on this and uh-huh and and I was really at peace about everything. I was thinking fast. I was thinking clearly, but, you know, God definitely had a role in, in where we were going with this. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go crawl behind the tire on the leeward side of the engine so that I can at least get out of this mess. So I did that and I put my brains back in my head, got recovered a little bit, but then the engine started rocking and it started moving on the dirt road. And I thought, Oh my gosh, I got to get us out of here. Yeah. So, um, I, I, sorry to interrupt. I want to make well, sure right. the listeners, they're hearing what's going on. I've been around massive military training bases that have lots mm-hmm. of brush. And in order right. to keep, uh, you know, that brush under control, but also more importantly, to keep a fire from spreading across an entire state, the military will do what you're describing. They will do a controlled wildfire. They will take a huge section of land. They will start a fire on the perimeter of that entire section of land. And the fire starts uh, really small on the perimeter by the road. And then it just moves quickly to the inside. And theoretically, it burns itself out when it gets to the center of that plot of land. I've been around that a lot. So I've had a chance to see the pressure and the wind and kind of the force that a fire can create and it will pick up vehicles off the ground. That's how much force a fire can create. It will create winds and vortexes like a tornado um, for the listener. And when you say rocks are pelting you, when you say that the vehicle is rocking, I want them to understand that's all being created by the force of the fire around you. Is that accurate? That that's accurate, and it, it was so loud. It was literally like standing behind a KC ten or something when it was, you know, getting ready yeah, to attack. Standing behind a jet that. engine that's on yes. full throttle, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know? and, and so, um, the the fortunate thing was is we had burned out enough around us that we didn't get any direct flame impingement. Uh-huh. But. Um, so we were spared that, but we were still we were still taking everything the fire could throw at us, and 
So I thought I got to get us out of here. That that's the only answer. You know, so I, I went over to the cab, and I had a hard time getting the door open, um, partially because the international trucks you had to hold the handle up like this to get it out. But I'm pulling on it and pulling on it, and I thought, what idiot locked the door? You know, and I'm on the driver's side, I'm on the leeward side. But I looked down, and the pin was still up. And I thought, what's going on? But what I didn't know is we were overpressuring, underpressuring to this point that wouldn't let the doors open. And that's when I found out where Kevin was at because he opened up the door. Somehow he got the door on the windward side open and then overpressured the cab yeah. and the door smacks me in the face. It gives me <laughs> oh, a no. bloody nose. Oh, man. And now I'm sitting back down on the ground. Knocked on the head with a rock, busted face up from the door. Man, you're a mess right now. Yeah, and and it got to the point that I was going to start crying, so I started laughing. You know, you just do that. But I I finally got into the cab, and uh, I pushed in the spring brake, and I put it down into drive, and I'm ready to go. And Kevin's like, stop, stop, stop. You know, and I go, what? And he goes, he goes, where are you going? And I, I, you know, I said, anywhere but here, you know? And so um, he goes, look, and I looked outside and it's pitch black at this point, Jeff. You can't see anything but a bazillion embers going through the, going through the, uh, um, the, 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 the space in front of us, you know? And, and so um, I thought, well, I backed the engine up into the cut bank that we were sitting against to try to protect the firefighters on the back a little more, which made the cab the target of everything that was coming at us. And so I went ahead and parked it again, and Kevin and I ended up on the floor. And so, you know, the window gets cracked, the mirror gets broken, the light bar takes a shot, and you know, again, the whole engine's just rocking and stuff like this. And finally, all of a sudden, as fast as it started, it was over with. And Kevin and I kind of looked at each other and I pulled the engine back out onto the road a little bit. And uh, we got out and I was told at that point, because I don't know, I couldn't see it all, but there was 800 acres on the other side of the road on fire now. And so, of course... You know, everything that we had set in place. Now, was now, yeah, now wh- all of the work that you did is for nothing. Blown up. And, and so we, we went to the back of the fire engine and uh, there literally was probably a foot or a foot and a half of debris and dirt and ash and everything else wow. on top of the two firefighters back there. And so, um, you know, we're digging them out and all of a sudden everybody kind of realized that we're gone. You know, they thought that you know, I had so many comments that said, we thought you guys were dead. And everybody's screaming for us on the radio. And, you know, at least probably a dozen different units were calling us. And I couldn't even answer because they just kept, you know how the radio yeah, trap. I how, just, sure, I know how it goes. Yep. They're walking on each other, you know, and, and I can't get a word in edgewise. And so finally, we just kept digging the guy, the, the two, two of them out and. We, we rinsed them off because they had inhaled half of the world. Oh, man. And, you know, they were coughing and sputtering and their legs had burns on them. And, and so we were trying to take care of those guys. And finally, everybody shut up enough to where I could break in and say, hey, you know what? We're here. We got minor injuries. But, you know, 
no no need for a panic anymore because it's over with. And uh, then um, I heard somebody told me that there were two other captains that were further down the road on foot. And so oh I said, goodness. well, I'll go check yeah. them out. You know, I'll go check them out. And, um, you know, I'm running down the road looking for these guys. And I'm thinking, why am I running? I don't want to find two dead people out here. You know, and it turns out that they had hidden behind an out, a rock outcropping and had survived it. But at this place, one of my partners that had grown up in the fire service with was coming up the road in a pickup truck. He's crying, you know, and gave me a huge hug and stuff like that. And we finally got back to the to the landing zone for the helicopters where the ambulance was, ambulance was at and stuff like that. And you know, we turned the the two firefighters over to the um, to the medics over there. And then Kevin and I went back to fire camp after that with a very messed up engine and both of us with our brains kind of scrambled, yeah. but okay. Well, I know all of the listeners are dying to find this out. So all four of you guys survived and there were some burns and some minor injuries, but all four of you survived without any major, you know, trauma, uh, major injuries during this right. firestorm. I, I had, about 35 holes in my Nomex jacket where the wow. embers had burned through. And um, Nomex, were, by uh, the way, for the listener, is a fire resistant material. So this is the right. firefighter's jacket that has 35 holes in it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Nomex burns as long as there's flame on it. But once yeah. the flame goes out, it quits burning. But I had ember marks all over it. It had gotten sliced a couple of times. Um, and I probably had a dozen or so small burns on each arm. I'd had some on my face. I took an ember in the eye. But, oh, man. Um, and that was probably my biggest problem. But um, Where's that jacket know, right now? It needs to be hanging up in a museum somewhere so that people can see what you guys did out there. Well, you know, the funny thing is, is the investigators took it and I never saw it again. <laughs> <laughs> they probably sent it back to the company and said, Hey, this stuff that you guys made, look at this. It, it, no question saved your life many times over. Right. Well, the funny thing was, is this, the service center, which gives us all of our equipment, that's where our supplies are at, wanted that shirt back because I had gotten another shirt out, obviously. And they, they wanted the exchange. And I'm like, I don't even know where it's at. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. But, uh, um, they, they, I want to skip forward in your story just a little bit because there's okay. another part of your story that I want people to hear. So you spent a long time with the fire department. Uh, if I heard yes. the number correctly, 34 years, is that what you said? Yeah. And then eventually you retire, um, but it doesn't actually go that well. Can you describe, you know, forced retirement and leaving California fire um, and the financial crisis that, that, it, uh, that you incurred as a result of it? Yeah, it was pretty interesting because I, when the kids became teenagers, um, I left Cal Fire, um, number one, because the work weeks were just really long and, and like the military, you know, if we, they needed us on a fire, you just you got the orders go, to go. Right? It doesn't you matter go. if it's a special occasion, you got to leave. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, having three boys of our own, um, being in their teens, you know, they, 
their brains don't work, you know, it's all cortisol and testosterone and they're giving mom a hard time, you know, and so I uh, decided to go to a smaller department um, and, and I was the fire chief there. So things were working out pretty good, uh, but for the first year, but after that, things kind of went downhill and, and I had another department that was headhunting me. So I went to the second department, got a huge raise, which was great for my retirement and um, worked there for about two and a half years. And then 6.30 in the morning, the city manager walked in with, here's your papers, we'll see you later. You know, wow, and, uh, that much notice. Hey, here's yeah. your walking papers, 34 years of service, see ya. Yeah, exactly, you know, and so um, that, that became a huge stressor. You know, now, is, what you're describing, Mike, right now is most people who most families, you know, waking nightmare that uh, they'll walk into the office tomorrow and, you know, their entire livelihood is gone in an instant because somebody says, thanks for everything, but I'll see you later. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. And so like like one of your other guests said it doesn't matter at that point really how Christian you are. Your identity is so much wrapped up in what your employment is. And especially if you're in the military or public so safety true. to where so true. Yes. It, it's not a job. It's a lifestyle. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm, I'm at home, you know, and I, 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 I had stopped off at the helicopter company and said, Hey, I need, I need a job back. And they didn't have a slot, but they were going to work on it. Stopped off at the college so I could become an instructor there. But, you know, it was April and I had to wait till September till the next class started. And so, you know, there was, there was a little bit of a nice vacation there, but you know, somebody as hyper as I am doesn't do well just sitting around. And, but it, it did put me through some changes and, um, even though there was stuff to do at church and things like that, you still struggled with the identity part of it. And, um, we, it was interesting as we started looking to get out of state because we, we were kind of at the point of the spear of the California exodus, um, we, we had an opportunity in South Dakota that did not go well. And, but the kids couldn't get jobs. Our sons couldn't get jobs. They all went into public safety, but their educations were done. They had their academies. Nobody was hiring. They were laying off at the top and not backfilling from the bottom at the time. So our middle son ended up getting a job with Montgomery, Alabama fire rescue. And so our second son got a job with Montgomery PD. Our third son was in Israel at the time or earning his master's. And he says, I'm not going back. I'm going to Alabama with the guys. So Marie and I decided that we'll pick up and, and head that direction since we already had one grandchild and more on the way, but that would be the best place for us. And it kind of extended, I think the transition a little bit to normalcy. Or, or to the new normal anyway, um, because now we're truly in a foreign place. I mean, it was like we almost needed our passports to get stamped here because the culture's so different and the language is different and the mindset is different. And, you know, so, but uh, it, it took us about 
five years to find a church that we were really grounded with yeah. and accepted us. And, and after that, after I got into that church, then things just started racing and, you know, got back into ministry and, 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 you know, things are rocking now. Things are All right. Really yeah. Now, so. You're not the first person that described moving halfway across the United States to a different part of the, the, the United States is very much like moving to a different culture country. You might as well stamp my passport because even the way that they talk is so different that we're having a, a hard time, you know, understanding. Um, yeah. You're not the first person that I've heard say that. Um, there was, look, being uh, being let go from the fire department, California fire, the way that you were let go, it obviously impacted your finances. So how did you and your family navigate through that as well? We, um, we were blessed in the fact that we had about half of my salary to live on. Um, how, I, let I me make sure I heard this correctly. Half of what a normal retirement from California fire would be, is that what you have? No, half of my half of my salary. Okay. When I was working half of what you were making before they let you go. Right. Got and it. And so um, I lost about twenty five percent of my pay from overtime because we always had overtime. Uh -huh. And then I retired at seventy five percent, so we lost twenty five percent off the top. So it ended up about half of what what we were used to. Um, fortunately. Um, we had some savings uh, and we were able to live off of that a little bit. We we had about seven years left to pay on the house. And I actually planned on my last paycheck paying the house off on the mortgage and then retiring. And uh, of course that, that went down the drain. We had to go back to a 30 year loan so that we could oh, afford man. the house payment. Yeah. And yeah, we're, we're still working on that one. <laughs> so we've been in this house for eight years now, yeah. but, um, you know, so that, that whole idea of not having a mortgage when you retired just went down the drain. Yeah. But, um, we, my wife has always been so good with the finances. And I, I know there's a lot of people out there who say the husband should always do the finances, but you know, when, when you're gone three or four months a year, you know, your wife has to just pick up the house and do it. And so she's been great with the finances. I, it would probably make me crazy. I could handle the $19 million budget. That didn't bother me to, to try to balance a checkbook. It would be crazy. <laughs> yeah. but she, she was very diligent in keeping the bills down low and, um, you know, fortunately, we were able to, to redo the house and, and that helped bring things into some semblance of sanity for us. And then, like I said, in August, I um, picked up a position back on the helicopter. And then uh, September, I started in at the school. So that made up for the other, you know, 25 or 30 yeah. percent that we were missing. So but God took yeah. care of us. If uh if the listeners are, 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 you know, putting this all together right now, um, you go through this firestorm and you, you know, go through these incredible uh, circumstances with that brush fire that you survived. And then years later, when you're asked to let go, you actually went through a financial storm 
because I'm sitting there thinking, I don't know many families on the planet that could overnight lose basically 50% of their income is what you're describing and not go bankrupt and basically, you know, have to sell or, or lose everything. You're, you guys must be very, very careful. Your wife must be incredibly uh, efficient and very frugal with your income. If you can keep making the, the ends meet, keep paying the bills, losing 50% of your income overnight. I don't, I don't know how many people on the planet could handle that kind, could make that kind of financial loss uh, and still pay the bills. Yeah. Again, it, it was just a God thing, you know, and um, truly we've had a little bit more trouble here because, um, you know, we had to start over again on another house payment yeah. and, yeah. and, and getting a, here, I, I had no job. You know, sure. I've, I've got a little part-time church job now, but you know, there, there's, there's no income from the college coming in. There's no income yeah. from the helicopter company coming in. So that, that's been a bit more of a financial struggle, but you know, God has always provided. He has never let us down. We're, we're very well off. I, I can't complain about it. You know, it's, you wow. know, he's, that's he's a great attitude, Mike. abundantly, you know, yeah. with that, you know, so. That is an unbeatable attitude where I've gone through some incredible hardships and at home as a child, and I, I didn't let it beat me. I went through incredible, you know, physical and, you know, emotional, psychological hardships on the fire department, and I didn't let it beat me. And then I went through some incredible financial hardships, and we're not going to let this beat us. We're going to keep facing it, and we're going to, you know, uh, handle whatever challenges come next. Uh, there's a little bit in your story for, in every part of your story that we can all learn from Mike and, uh, man, I want to thank you for sharing it with us on this episode. There's some people that were listening and they're saying, man, I'd like to get to know more about Mike, or I'd like to learn uh, more about him. If people wanted to know more about you, or if they just wanted to get connected to you, is there a way that they can do that? Um, you can reach me at Montgomery Baptist association in Alabama. That's Montgomery, um, Alabama. The, the, they can do a Google search for the Montgomery Baptist Association in Montgomery, Alabama. Right. Yeah, it, it's uh, mgm.org. Okay. And uh, you'll see me on staff there. And um, I don't have a web page or anything. Of course. I do have a Facebook right. page, but I'm, I'm not a big Facebooker. Yeah. You know, I get on it maybe every three to four weeks. But All right. Um, mostly just to watch the kids, what they're yeah. doing. But, uh, that, uh, URL that you just gave that website that you just gave, we're going to put a link to that in the notes. So if you're driving right now and you just heard that, but you don't have a chance to turn or to pull over to the side and write it down, no worries. Yeah. We'll put that link in the notes. If people want to find more about you or yeah. reach out to you, they can do yeah. it at that website. It's, it's mgmbaptist.org. Okay. Plural Baptists. Yeah, got it. Well, again, Mike, man, thank you for being on this episode. Thanks for sharing the storms, plural, of life, that firestorm, the financial storm, even the family storm. Do you like how I just do that uh, with the words that start with the letter F? Um, the, all of those storms that you've went through. And man, um, I'm proud to see how you're handling it, your attitude and the fact that you're facing it and you're going to remain unbeatable. So thanks for sharing with us today, man. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And, you know, 
looking forward to coming out to your church one of these Sundays and visiting and you know, get to meet you once again. So. Yeah, we're not that far away, so who knows? Maybe we'll get a chance to see each other face-to-face -face sometime. Yeah, we can do that and go to Sappos afterwards or something. <laughs> All <so>. right. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. We'll see you around. Okay, take care, Jeff. Yeah. And there's something from Mike's story that all of us can learn from. Maybe you've gone through some family storms like Mike. Maybe you've gone through some financial storms like Mike. Maybe you're going through a firestorm in another area of your life right now. I hope that you learn from Mike's attitude, Mike's determination, Mike's uh, commitment that no matter what happens to him, he is not going to quit. That's why the Unbeatable Podcast exists. So I hope you were excited and you were um, fired up by this interview just like I was. I want to thank you for joining me. As always, um, many of you may have found this episode for the very first time. Maybe you don't even know who this podcast is and what we're all about. If you like this episode, there are a ton more guests just like Mike. In fact, he referenced one or two of them in this interview. And there are a lot more like Mike coming up. So why don't you go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and we'll deliver the next amazing guest right to your phone or to your device um, every week uh, without fail. I also want to just invite you to get connected with us through the Unbeatable Army, our online email address, and it's totally free if you want to join we send you content all week long about our guests, but we also send you more content about what's happening with the unbeatable, the greater unbeatable family. So if you want to become part of the unbeatable army, simply go over to unbeatablearmy.com. There are some storms in life that you just need a little bit of advice. You just need a little bit of motivation. You need a little bit of strength to go through. And I've created this little PDF, this free download called the Unbeatable Army Survival Guide. I'll give that to you totally free if you just sign up at unbeatablearmy.com. By the way, you can also find us on social media if you just search for at Unbeatable Podcast. We're pretty much on all the social media platforms. You're going to find some pretty amazing people out there. And our fan of the week for this week is Preston Cravey III. Preston Thank you for being connected. Thank you for being so engaged on social media. Preston, we think you're awesome. That's why you're the fan of the week this week. Once again, thanks for joining me on this episode. I hope you heard something that's going to get you through a storm this week. See you next time. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable.